Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board, Intervention, Crystal Spring, Johnsonville Foods, High Pork Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Fibro Animal Health, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com. Brought to you by American Resources. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're joined by Ann McMillan to talk about farm policy. And she is a political strategist and joining us here today. And thank you, Ann, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. I'm excited to talk into some of these things because sometimes it's hard to find guests who can speak deeply <laughs> to these topics. And um, not to no put pressure. you on the spot, but no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> So before we get into it, I'd love it if you could give us a background on yourself and how you got into the role you are today. Sure. Um, again, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, I, this might take a second, but I will start with, so my um, family actually hails from Iowa. My dad, my grandfather was a small farmer in Southeast um, Iowa. And so I've always had like an appreciation for agriculture, but I certainly did not grow up on a farm. My mom uh, moved out of her small town in Iowa. And I actually grew up in California and, um, I've always, I would, I, my sort of, when I graduated college, my options for pursuing politics, which I knew I wanted to do was to stay in Sacramento where I grew up or move to Washington, DC. And my 21 year old self said, get out of your parents' house. <laughs> so I moved to Washington, DC and just sort of fell into agricultural work. And, um, the member I worked for, um, first I worked for my hometown congressman and then my the uh, Dennis Cardozo who represented the central Valley of California. And so really got an exposure to a wide array of sort of California, especially crops and, and dairy issues. And then I just kept doing agriculture issues. And I ended up at USDA um, <laughs> with, um, with uh, secretary Vilsack and just to sort of loop back to Iowa I think one of the reasons he hired me was because I was from Iowa. <laughs> well, I mean, I was at least once removed. Um, and, you know, I had, I had told him during my interview that I had seen his wife had, when he was, when he was the uh, um, governor, she came to my grandmother's town to open up a library. It was one of her oh, wow. positions. Yeah. Um, I didn't know much about him when I was interviewing with him, but I, you know, I, I told that story. I'd only come to know that he's there they have an incredibly deep relationship. And, and that was a very good thing to say in an interview that I was impressed with his wife. So anywho, it's, I got, I got the job with him and spent four wonderful years at USDA. And then I've sort of been what we call in Washington, DC downtown, uh, in the lobbying world ever since primarily focusing on food and ag issues. Gotcha. So from afar, DC can seem pretty chaotic. And I've had the opportunity with the Iowa Pork Leadership Academy to get more involved with politics and how things work. But could you give us an overview of what you do, how you do it, and how you navigate the policy world in D.C.? Sure. 
And I agree with you. It's chaotic. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. It's not always been this way, but it feels like it just kind of keeps getting weirder. Um, you know, I, so I'm a lobbyist and um, I'm in what we call in Washington, D.C., a multi-client lobbyist. So I am basically, I have a number of clients and they contract with me to sort of provide everything from strategic advice to consulting to helping, you know, facilitate meetings on Capitol Hill and within the administration. Um, and, you know, I've been lucky to have a, a lot of really wonderful clients, in, including the, the national pork producers, and that have, you know, been great partners over the years. And so what what I do is I try to ignore the chaos. <laughs> I, I recognize it and appreciate it, and you have to sort of understand it. But I I think it's better to to not get caught up on it and to really just focus on, you know, what what the client wants and needs and, and what's the best way to accomplish that. Um, and it's different for everybody. And, you know, this year is, is particularly exciting because we're in a farm bill year. So every five years, the agriculture community in Washington, D.C. And, and out there in the countryside gets fired up. And we, you know, we we uh, cajole and, and, and scratch our way to the end of the finish line <laughs> of a farm bill. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the farm bill and what's been going on there? Yeah. Um, you know, the farm bills of every do it every five years or so, sometimes it gets, it's longer. Um, you know, and it sets the farm policy for the next five years. And, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty important piece of legislation. I think I will say, you know, more recently I've, I've questioned whether it's sufficient, um, to talk, to be the, the one vehicle of where we discuss, you know, all of the, you know, food and agriculture system in the United States. I would sort of argue it's not, um, and that, you know, it, it, it's a great vehicle for taking care of sort of the immediate problem at the time, but it's, you know, every five years is a long time to, that's a very long time. Yeah. And it, sometimes I think it's too long and, um, it, you know, the market moves on, um, and Congress is, is woefully behind and sort of keeping up with the pace of the marketplace sometimes. I can't imagine if I tried to do our business and we every were like, time. all right, Five-year plan. Yeah, this is what right? we're gonna do. It would be terrible. Nobody would give you any loans. Like you would, you would couldn't find anyone to bank with. It's just not the smartest. But there's also a level of stability that is inf infused into a five-year term, especially for the commodity crops who need that, you know, certainty in their and their um and their support payments. Absolutely. So, what is the prognosis for the farm bill? What 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 are you seeing right now? Well, I should say that this is my fourth farm bill. <laughs> I'm, I'm old. And, you know, every farm bill, th there's a lot of hand wringing. At, we're in the hand wringing stage of the farm bill where okay. it feels like it's really going to be hard and there's a lot of fighting and people want to cut this and, you know, add to this. I just have seen it all before. And so it doesn't really rattle me as much. Like, I think, you know, this is a tough year that Congress is divided, the, you know, Republicans control the House and the Democrats control the Senate, and they're usually not on the same page. And, you know, so there are some externalities that haven't been present in, in, in some cases, but, you know, this is, it's likely to be extended and pushed into 2024. And I just find it very difficult to think that Congress will not pass a farm bill in an election year. Will it be a pretty process? No. Will there be a lot of ups and downs? Yes. But will we get a farm bill? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> what are some of the bigger sticking points right now 
that uh, people are fighting about? Money. Um, <laughs> there's not enough of it. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's two there's two things. One in in the sort of the farm side of it, there's a lot as I, as we were talking about before. You know, there's there's a lot that's happened since the last farm bill. I mean, we have most importantly, this is the first post COVID farm bill. And I think we saw our food system be severely impacted, particularly in the pork and other livestock sectors, right? It was just, it was chaos there for a bit. And we learned that while our food system is highly efficient, it it can, it may not have been as resilient as we wanted it to be. And so I think there's a lot of, you know, questions about how we continue to, to shore up the food system, but to do that, you generally need money. And there's just not a lot of new dollars in this farm bill. And then you have things like, you know, foreign, you know, infectious diseases and another sort of post-COVID realization and, and where we're going to get the resources to really protect um, our livestock, um, you know, is, is still an open question. So I think there's some of those sticking points. Um, and then there's always a sticking point about SNAP or, or the food stamp program. It is a, it's, it's a, very large program. It, it's going to CBO or the Congressional Budget Office just scored it as you know upwards of we one one plus trillion dollars over the next ten years, and I think that makes people uncomfortable. That it is just such an enormous amount of of spending, and how do we make sure that that all of those dollars are being used um, correctly? Yeah, it was interesting because I can't remember who passed it. Maybe it was the uh, maybe it was I or not, but it was this idea and this debate around whether or not those programs um, could allow you to buy like candy or pop or things that aren't necessarily nutritious. And I brought it up to someone, and they were like, "Well, if you can't buy those things, and you have to add more money for them to buy more nutritious things because the nutritious things cost more." Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "Oh my goodness!" Like something so, that I thought was simple turned into this big debate and it's just, I can imagine what things would be like in DC because things aren't simple and there's a lot more minds going at it. Do you feel like sometimes the simple stuff just gets, yes, it's made difficult (laughs) because of the process. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, listen, in, in Washington, D.C., we have, you know, 435 opinions in the house and a hundred opinions in the Senate. And that's very difficult. And, you know, plus, you know, many opinions in the, in the white house. Um, it's very difficult to align those opinions and to, and to do something, you know, um, to sort of get, get all of those people rowing in the right direction. Um, you know, and then when you're talking about a program as enormous as snap, even the smallest change can have enormous ripple effects. And so you really do have to, you know, consider those, those, uh, intended and unintended consequences and and every sort of policy change that you do in the farm bill. Um, And, you know, that's why it takes so long (laughs) because it's a lot to like sift through um, and, and figure out. So I'm going to ask some, some questions and you can say pass if you don't want to answer them. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) One of them them would be, you've been doing this for 20 years. Yes. Fourth farm bill. What administration did, made the farm bill process the easiest? Oh, gosh. Um, well, it wasn't Bush because he vetoed it. <laughs> I almost think Obama did. I mean, um, because, you know, he I, I think he I think he kind of stayed out of it. Gosh, you're like kind of 
testing my memory bank here, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, they like, they, I, Bush vetoed it, which was, was not helpful. Obama passed two of them, you know, and, you know, I think, so I think, I think I would say Obama, we'll see. Biden's still a TBD because he's, he's in the middle of it. Right. So we'll see how he does. What in your time in DC or in politics has been your greatest win? Um, you guys work so hard and push for so many things. And sometimes it just probably feels like you get the answer. No, or you never quite get what you were looking for, but can you speak to one of your biggest wins? Oh gosh. What are you most um, proud of, of, of what you've been able to accomplish thus far in DC? Yeah, that's a good, that's a great question. I mean, I honestly think sometimes um, it's the littler wins that, you know, you, you're, or you, some of my smaller clients are, you know, a, re- a really small commodity. Like I represent the date commission in California, tiny organization, not nearly the, you know, the size and heft of like the corn growers or, or, or others. And, you know, they, all they needed was one thing from what, from USDA and, you know, and we got it and it was, they were so thankful for it. So sometimes it's the smaller, um, you know, uh, little, little wins that really keep you going to the next one, because <laughs> you'll have a little win and then you'll have a couple disappointments and then a little win reminds you why you do this job. So I have a few rapid fire questions for you that are going to be completely off topic. But what okay. is the D1 college that you root for? Oh, well, like in the brackets, in the, in the final point, like the March Madness. In general. Um, oh, okay. Well, um, so I will say, in the, I'll just go with the March Madness because that's most recently. So my mom went to Creighton and they're always good. So I always pick them to go pretty far. Um, but now my stepkids are in college. So I generally pick their schools if if there's an opportunity and so my daughter actually goes to the university of miami um in florida so oh. i had the u going all the way and they didn't quite make it but that's that's usually i usually have to have some kind of like connection to the to the school both men and women got close i know right it was so good my brackets were really good <laughs> and like i don't i'm not really a, a sports person so people were quite surprised <laughs> at my picking skills what's your go-to karaoke song Oh, share if I could turn back time. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes a Britney Spears, but mostly share. What actor or actress do you love or can't you stand? So I'll let you pick either end of the poll. Oh, gosh. Gosh, that's a good question. Or your favorite movie or your least favorite movie? Um, you know, I will say... Early on, well, I mean, I, I, get, I mean, is it? Can I just go by looks? I mean, Brad Pitt, like in the in in the in the heyday of Brad Pitt, like that, there was like no better person to watch on the big screen. So I'll go with that one. There you go. <laughs> What's your favorite food? Oh, do I do I have to say a pork product because <laughs> I <No>. can? <laughs> uh, I will. Okay, I'll say my favorite pork product is the pork tenderloin sandwiches in in Iowa. I don't know what they do to those things, but they are the best. And my mom <laughs> used to always take me. My mom and grandma used to take me to the Parthenon in in Fort Madison. I don't know if it's still around. I'm not sure. Yeah, sorry, that's my really dog. Um, and yeah, then, sure. but overall, it's Mexican food. Anything that would be my last meal if I was on death row. Have you ever been to Guadalajara and had like a torta there? No, but I, I'm sort of dying to go to like in, in inner Mexico, you know, um, that I I spent a lot of time in Mexican like beach towns, but that's my next Mexico adventure. 
Yes, yes. I, I've been to Monterey and Guadalajara, which are more inner town. And Guadalajara has tortas, and tortas aren't these hamburger-looking things. It's got this nice kind of baguette-looking roll or whatever with the the meat. Oh, my goodness. It's my favorite food in the world at this point, and I had a leftover one. So <laughs> it's it's insane. I love Mexican food, too. But, yeah, that inner yeah. inner inner country food is just incredible. I think nice. Oaxaca is high on my bucket list as well, just because Oaxaca is supposed to have the best Mexican food. Yes. Well, if you get the, if you find the best Mexican food, please share that important information with me. <laughs> what is your go-to beer? Oh, Corona. Corona with the lime or without? Like a Mexican theme here. I'm, maybe I'm just thinking <laughs> with the lime, obviously. With yes. Oh, well, cool. So to kind of break back into it, as we think about what you're doing and some of the threats to the food supply from infectious diseases like African swine fever or changing weather patterns, resource constraints. How is the federal government approaching these issues and what else might need to be done? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, it sort of goes back to what I was mentioning before that, you know, sometimes I talk about the fact that I fear that the that there is neither a vehicle or a venue in Washington to really have a serious, like comprehensive conversation about the, the U S food system. Um, we do this farm bill, but we only do it every five years. The jurisdiction of the farm bill is somewhat bifurcated. So issues that are, you know, take place at FDA, for example, are not included. Um, and so and then when I say a venue in, in Congress, there are multiple committees that have jurisdiction over, you know, agriculture or the food supply or, you know, food safety. And when you split all of that up, it becomes much more difficult to, I think, have a comprehensive conversation about, about American agriculture. So I think we've done a pretty good job to date. I mean, I, particularly with African swine fever and some of these really emerging threats, like Congress will be quick to can and, and will act quickly. Um, I worry about some of the climate change conversations and whether or not we're going to take, you know, it, or at least put things in motion that will give farmers the tools to to deal with, like, the changing weather moving forward. Um, so it's kind of a mixed bag, I'd say. And I, I, I wish that some of these um, obstacles could be removed in, in Washington, but it's they're pretty entrenched, to be quite honest. <laughs> and sure. so, you know, I might just have to keep you know, you sort of have to continue to grow your creativity in order to knit these these different, um, you know, issues across different committees and different pieces of legislation. What do you think the biggest distraction right now is in D.C. within the farm bill that people are talking about, but you just feel as though is completely irrelevant compared to some of the other things that are going on? Um, I mean, I think the conversations about the the nutrition title are 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 somewhat silly to have i mean it's there are just people who have such strong feelings about it on both sides that we should like drastically increase the amount of benefits that everybody has or drastically decrease and we just keep having the same fight every 5 years and nothing changes it's just the same you know like nothing materially changes because the two sides are so entrenched um so nobody's happy and, um, you know, so we're, we're in the middle of that fight again. And, I, you know, I just I sort of don't pay much attention to it because I just can't see any real substantive changes happening. And but it sure does suck a ton of oxygen out of the room in every conversation. 
So let's talk trade. How is the Biden administration approaching international trade? And what are some of the current policies that or priorities that are being focused on right now? Yeah, so this administration, um, I'd say, is approaching it (laughs) with a very like hands off approach. I don't know how to say it. Like it's a it's it's, um, you know, it's interesting. So the 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 Trump administration had a very unique approach to trade, too, which was to sort of. be quite aggressive and and shut it all down. And, you know, for the end goal of trying to, you know, have a, a a more equitable trade arrangement, certainly with China, the Biden administration's approach is much um, softer, but not also much more, uh, you know, and and so, but not really doing much more differently if you, if you can, if you will. And so um, a softer aggression, but yeah, I mean, they're certainly not aggressive. It's just softer. So there's no free trade agreements that we saw like under the Obama or even the Bush eras. And, you know, there's, there's sort of little, very little, I, you know, from the, I think from American agriculture's perspective, less, you know, focus on opening new markets um, in, in the more traditional route, which is a free trade agreement and, and sort of going through a little bit less um, formalized, engagements, which I think, I think folks in, in ag would like to see a, a much more aggressive posture in, in new market development from this administration. And, and I, you know, I can understand that. And do you think that's going to happen or do you think it's just is what it is for the time being? Yeah, I think it's what it is for the time being. I, I think there's a lack of, you know, the, from the administration, the, the return on the investment just isn't there at the moment, but I do, I do think if, if the president wins a second term, I think you could potentially there see, you know, a a significantly different posture on trade. Um, But for right now, it's hard to see a a real monumental change. Ooh, here's a fun one that you might want to pass on. (laughs) Who, what potential alternate candidate from either side do you see potentially being best for agriculture or for the next farm bill? Mm. I know we don't really have official candidates yet, so that's why yes. you might just want to pass on it. But um, if there was somebody you could see run to really give agriculture what you think it needs, who do you think that is? I'm going to answer this without any this, but the disclaimer that's zero um, uh, like impact on the people who are currently in the running, but. I am a huge Tom Vilsack fan. I thought I've worked, I worked for him for four years. He is a class act. And if he would like to run for president again, I would be, I would be behind him because he would be the best for American agriculture. He, he knows this industry inside and out and there would be no greater advocate. Will that ever happen? No, but I can just, (laughs) I can just say it. (laughs) Well, thank, thank you for at least playing along there. Um, Yeah. It would be nice if we got somebody who was who was really focused on it, but yeah, um, it's, it's difficult. Be harder without Iowa as the as the first in the primary. Yes, a lot harder. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think Congress can accomplish this year on addressing labor shortage? Um, I think I don't even think I know. Based on as many producers as we've talked to, everyone wants labor or uh, immigrant reform, right? Um, immigration reform. Uh, Labor shortage is such a challenge, and it just feels like that if we do it wrong, we're stuck with ever whatever we did wrong for like the next two decades. So yeah. when we do it, we have to do it right. 
What do you think Congress is going to try to accomplish this year in addressing labor shortages? I mean, I think whatever they, I think there will be a lot of, of, of attempts to address this issue. Um, I'm, I don't know how successful they will be, but I think the first and foremost is really addressing the H2A program. And cause that's our sort of our only, you know, our best and best option for um, farm workers in particular. And it's not the perfect program. It has a lot to be desired, you know, for particularly in the, in the um, livestock sector, you need year round labor and it is a seasonal you know, workforce that it's providing. So even just a small change like that has been unnecessarily difficult to implement. Yes. Um, that being said, I, you know, I'm interested in seeing if there's appetite for at least, you know, it, it's sort of well understood in Washington that we need to have some sort of border security improvement coupled with any kind of immigration reform. And, you know, we, we've over the over the years at Invariant have represented a number of sort of technology platforms that have, are trying to solve some of these really tricky um, problems, both at the border and, you know, compliance with H2A and such. And so my, my only hope is that maybe there's something that we can shift the conversation away from the same arguments that we've been having for the last 20 years into something, you know, maybe there's a, you know, a technology solution that we don't know about, or that we could help, you know, that could help bridge the gap here or just something more creative than having the same fights as, as you can tell, I'm annoyed and over that. <laughs> so, yeah. So you brought, <laughs> all the fights, you brought the fights word, which helps my next question. I was going to say is, is it just not on top of mind or is it just that polarizing? It's just that polarizing. It's on, okay. it's on top of everyone's mind. I think too, um, you know, cause it's in every sector. It's not just the agriculture sector, the manufacturing sector, you know, you know, every, you know, um, all, anybody that requires, you know, sort of manual labor, it's really difficult to secure that at this point. And so, um, you know, I think our productivity, you know, and GDP will, will be impacted by that. And so it's well on everyone's radar, just the solution just continues to be so elusive. Um, because it takes a lot of political will to on both sides to get across the finish line here. What component of some of the proposed solutions for immigration reform do you think is, you know, really is simple and, mm-hmm. and it's just so polarizing. We're never going to really, we haven't seen any progress on it. Like, well, I mean, like I was saying the the issue of, of being able to secure H2, an H2A worker for year round. I mean, I think yeah. right now that you have to, this is sort of really meant for seasonal work. And I don't, I just, I just sort of flabbergasted why this can't, you know, we've had progress in the past where it's been, you know, put into some bills and they've gotten passed in one team, either in the house or in the Senate or, but not both. And, you know, I just, it, it, I'm sort of befuddled as to why something pretty simple can't like that can't get across the finish line. That is bewildering that there's not an agreement on, Oh yeah. For seasonal or for year long continuous production. Yeah. 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 But yeah, not for lack of trying, I will tell you. I mean, it's just, it's just, it can, sometimes this place can be kind of frustrating in that sense. Cause it's a common sense. It's a small fix. It would help so many people. And yet it still can sometimes be out of reach. Can you speak to it? Sometimes what we would assume is incredibly backward 
So can you speak to the, with something like that, seasonal, not, not seasonal, year-long H2A, uh, year-round H2A, is that a, how, how do the parties split on that? Well, I think, um, you know, it's a, it's a mix depending on who you're asking them. So sometimes. Okay, so it's not um, even just party driven. No, I mean, well, it's, well, you know, there's different factions within each, all the parties as well, right? Democrats are not monolithic, neither are Republicans. But for, for example, here, you know, sometimes Rep- Democrats will not want to support a tiny fix because they want a comprehensive fix. <laughs> sometimes, you know, um, Republicans won't want to support a small fix because they want comprehensive border security improvements. So so it's like, I don't think there's a concern about this policy. It is that there, it is wrapped up in bigger political concerns. It's a pawn to a greater goal. Correct. Correct. Gotcha. So what else should producers be thinking about that I haven't asked? Yeah. I mean, we, we touched a little bit on African swine fever, but I think, you know, I just, um, you know, certainly post COVID, I think these zoonotic diseases are just really front and center. And I think, um, you know, we've been so lucky in the United States to not have outbreaks of foot and mouth disease or, you know, all of these sort of um, really scary things. And sometimes I think our, our luck or not luck, it takes a lot of work to keep those diseases out of the United States, but sometimes we're so good at it that, people are lulled into a sense of security and it could be so devastating to the pork industry if any of these um, diseases would actually make it on land. And I think, you know, continuing that vigilance is hard when, you know, when it, when people feel comfortable that we're safe here. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, So it's, you know, and then I think, and then I also think post COVID um, I mean, gosh, the pork industry was so impacted by the, you know, pigs can't stop their process, right? <laughs> like yeah. you can't turn them off. Um, and man, was that so, so challenging. And I think, um, you know, just, it, and it's already feels like a little bit in the, in the rear view mirror. So I think just reminding people about how, how important it is to be able to react quickly in times of crisis and, and help our farmers, I think is really going to be important. Yeah. Pork was kind of the perfect storm, right? Oh my poultry, gosh. You can, you can kind of stop poultry mm-hmm. if you need to flexible cattle, you know, it's such a long process anyways. What, what does a three month difference really make at the end right. of the day? But with pigs, Oh, was that bad? Yes, it was really bad. <laughs> and the, um, I mean, I just the way that the industry sort of came together and was able to, you know, explain to folks in Washington what was happening, I thought was really impressive. But yeah, I, I just, I always think like sometimes we, we have such short memories as Americans and certainly as members of yes. Congress. And, um, you know, this, it's, I just hope we never, I hope we've all learned the lessons and we've put things into place to we'll make sure that that, that kind of, um, you know, crisis doesn't hit again. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being a guest on the podcast. I have a couple of questions to wrap up. Um, the first one is what's something unique about you? Most people in our industry or in agriculture do not know. Um, well, I already told you that I didn't grow up on a farm. Sometimes that's not the first thing I lead with. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, so I played water polo in college, which is something that is a little random. Yeah. 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 
And what's a golden nugget, a bit of life wisdom that you've picked up along the way that you can share with listeners? Oh gosh. Um, so I have one, which is that, um, I am a big fan of, a, a of a personal kitchen cabinet. Um, so I like to have people in my life that are good sounding boards for various things, for relationship advice, for employment advice, for family, whatever. And, you know, sometimes they're my best friends, sometimes they're not, but just making sure that you have a group of people that are looking out for your best interests, even though if you don't even know what they are, um, is really important in, in, in getting to like the optimal happiness place. That's awesome. Support network. Yes. A support network. Thank you again for being a guest. This this has been great. Thank you for your your transparency and really appreciate it. Yeah. It's been wonderful. I appreciate the opportunity and thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. 